0: Welcome back to the show. Today we have G2 Patel. He's the Chief Product Officer and Chief Strategy Officer at Box. G2, welcome to the show.
1: Kevin, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm doing pretty well. That's great. Uh, Thanksgiving week, so um, we are excited about uh, taking some time off and with the family. So
0: that's great, and and I'm really excited to have you on the show. I, I think. What you guys are doing at Box is really innovative, and you guys have been around for so long, especially as a startup, that I'm really kind of fascinated to dive a little bit deeper into that later on in the show. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
1: Sure. Uh, I grew up in um, India. Okay. I moved here. um, I'm really old, so I moved here in 91. (laughs) <laughs> and um, cool. uh, came here for my undergrad, and okay. while I was an undergrad, I joined um, a team um, which, which was just starting out. Um, there were some ex-people from Xerox who were starting out a company okay. um, I joined as an intern with, and then a couple years later, a few of us actually bought out the original investor, and okay. that was okay. a company which is a think tank in the collaboration content management space, um, where we were kind of the McKinsey for the CIOs. You were really uh, on then. Yeah, we, yeah, it was a you know, research-based company, eventually forced to research investment. I ran that business. Uh, okay. I co-ran it with my business partner there for, about 17 years and then wow. um, decided okay. to move to the Valley. So I've had the exact opposite uh, route where I started really small. Then from there, I went to a really large company okay. called EMC.
0: Okay, okay. sure.
1: And... Um, their uh, software division in, in the West Coast and, in Silicon Valley. And then from there, um, you know, they had brought me in to um, uh, put together a strategy for cloud mobile. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things we found out very quickly with uh, an asset like Documentum is it's a pretty old um, you know, set of technologies and there was not much that you could do with uh, the legacy technologies that had not been updated in a while. So we decided to um you know i uh, proposed to the board that we should get some external um, talent infused so we bought a company which was about you know eightish or so people in size um about you know it was called simplicity and then we scaled that business up um to a little over 100 million in two and a half years wow. then dell was buying emc they wanted to make sure that they um uh didn't want to keep any of the um Assets that were not producing a profit yet at that point in time. So the board asked me to see if we could shop the business. We sold it to private equity. And then, um, you know, at the time I I had known Aaron for a while. We had done some partnering work together uh, while I was at EMC. And then he said, how how about you come here and incubate a second act for us? Because Box at the time was a little over 200 million in size. And um, they were looking to make sure that they became a multi-product company from a single product company. And, um, you know, um, they wanted to incubate the platform business, so they needed someone who had been a CEO and a, kind of a GM background that could come in and do that. So I fit the bill and then I came over here. We started the platform business. That's one of our fastest growing products now. And we have about, you know, close to a quarter of our business now coming from um, uh, products outside of our core. So. Pretty exciting progression. We're now close to, um, you know, we'll end the year. The guidance is uh, um, that the street has is around $600 million plus. Wow. That's kind of, uh, uh, that's the journey in, uh, in a quick nutshell.
0: No, that's, that's actually really quite fascinating to me. So for people that maybe haven't heard of Box, what exactly is the core of what you guys do? And then what's this platform version that you, you keep mentioning?
1: Yeah. So the, what we do is essentially our mission is to fundamentally change the way that people in organizations work. Sure. You know, we think of ourselves as defining the future of work: how people work with content, how they actually share and collaborate with content, both inside and outside the organization. Uh, how are they going to secure content? Make it make sure that it's compliant. Um, um, you know, and um, um, and the category that we play in is what we call cloud content management, which is essentially Uh, The ability to manage, secure, collaborate um, with your content and make sure that you can automate, um, you know, business processes for companies as well. So the problems that we solve are very distinctly three problems. The first problem that we solve is we help organizations uh, create a digital workplace where their employees Um, And uh, you know internally can have a set of tools that can that can allow them to be work more productively with each other um, And use content in a more effective way So that's the first problem, which is you know, how do we help organizations get to be a better digital workplace? And um, uh, The second problem that we have then is it's not and by the way the first problem on the digital workplace It used to be that, you know, the only people that cared about that was the CIO (laughs) but now what you're starting to see is in fact um, you know people in h r really care about it as well because there's a direct correlation between your i t stack and the culture that you create in your company. sure. If you have a modern stack you 're going to essentially be able to uh, make sure that you have a culture that's more transparent and more collaborative and more open and more you know kind of more effective in uh, sharing information rather than hoarding information so on and so forth. So there's a lot of ripple effects to how your business operates if you actually have the right technology stack that you can get people productive with. so that's the first problem that we solve is digital workplace. The second big problem that we solve is this whole notion of um, create helping a, a business become more digital in its in its at its core so, uh, essentially being more of a digital business rather than just being a, a analog business with a you um, know shim of a uh, of a digital veneer that you've put on top of it so you know if you think of every company right now they're eventually going to be a technology company or a digital company or a software company and we want to make sure that the everything from back off kind of your your processes in your business, to uh, the way in which you engage with your customers, suppliers, and partners, gets to be more digital in nature. And so that's the second problem we solve: is how to help companies become more of a digital business. And then the third problem that we solve is, you know, what specifically do we need to do to make sure that we can have the right level of security, data protection, compliance, privacy of your data? Because you know, are we are in the business of protecting and managing our customers most pressure, you know, one, one of them, their most precious assets, which is their information and their intellectual property. So how do we ensure that we secure that more? So those are the three core problems that we um, tend to solve. And then to answer your question on, you know, what is when we refer to core versus platform, what's the difference? Well, core is we have a set of um, applications that we had built for digital workplace. And that's what we think of as our first, you know, kind of our core business that we had. and then. Very quickly, we realized after, not very quickly, but about eight, nine years into the business, we realized that, hey, customers are not just looking to go out and use applications that we've provided for them. But they would like to white label box into custom applications that they also end up building. Interesting. So what we have is a set of APIs where every single capability we have in our product is also exposed as a set of RESTful services. So you can embed that into um, a um, an application that you might have built. So if you've built a customer portal or some kind of investor advisor website and you wanted to make sure that you had a secure document vault so you don't have to rethink how encryption was created and how collaboration occurred, you can just use our APIs and not have to rebuild everything by itself.
0: Which is actually really complex. If If you had to build that yourself, you would need many if not maybe a dozen or more people just to maintain that part of something internal that you're building, right? And being able to leverage the technology that you guys have built basically is astronomically cheaper to just use you guys. Is that fair to say?
1: That's actually really fair. If you think about this from a very, you know, kind of simplistic perspective, what might be someone's core is not necessarily, like, you know, Con- managing content and creating yeah, a system for managing content—that's our core business. Sure, but that's not necessarily Nike's core business yeah, or core business or GE's core business. They just need those components because it's essential to their business, but it's not their core. So, if we can make sure that you know, the example I give to people is: imagine if you wanted HD, you know, Netflix-style HD, um, um, HD video quality, kind of you know, uh, streaming in, in your in your app. That you were building, um, you shouldn't have to hire 400 engineers like Netflix does for that particular area. You should just be able to make, you know, a few API calls in the box and actually get that, uh, um, you know, kind of um, um, a viewer uh, with streaming video um, and instant transcoding just kind of put into your um, um, your, your your core application. And so that, that's one way that what if, if the entire world operated that way, that they only built what was their core and they utilized the ecosystem for things that were not core but essential, what you start to see is the innovation velocity um, grows at a very, very exponential rate when that happens. So, um, you know, I think in the world we live in right now where your half-life of companies is shrinking, the amount of time it takes for, you know, building... Um, applications has gone down from, you know, 18 to 24 months in you know a decade ago to now in three months, you can actually build an application. Yeah. And if you exactly. look at a company like Uber or Lyft, any of these, like they didn't build everything from the ground up. They actually used a bunch of these microservices, assembled them together and said, I don't need to build a payment system. I'm going to use Stripe. I don't need to build a um, um, a messaging system or communications platform. I'm going to use Twilio, uh, uh, you know, and they, they have these microservices they pull together so that the application, what they do then is unmistakably curate a great experience for their customer, but everything so that they can change transportation. But then everything else is something that they've actually used a core set of platform providers to stitch together. And we are one of those platform providers for managing content.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you guys have been around a really, really long time and you have some huge companies using your products and services. How do you guys decide what features to add, who to collaborate with? How do you guys basically make sure you're current, well, kind of keeping the stuff that people have been using for years still relevant and and not break it? Because that's really, really challenging when, you have, when you've been around for so long. Do you agree with that, or, or what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, I mean, the way we think about it is we are, we've been around for about 13 years. Sure. And, you know, uh, we're about, like I said, about $600 million or so in revenues, but we've got yeah. 90,000 customers. Wow. And what's remarkable about our company is you've got one product that is purchased by a three-man outfit or a three-person outfit. Right, uh, And then you've got that same product that is also purchased by companies like GE and Coca-Cola and Pfizer and you know, wow. AstraZeneca and Eli Lilly and Procter & Gamble and, and the list goes on and on. And uh, we've got 69% of the Fortune 500 that are customers of ours.
0: Wow, that's huge.
1: Yeah, so what, what ends up happening, it's a, it's a really interesting product challenge because when you have a single product that spans multiple segments of the market from uh, the small, the Soho to the small, to the SMB market, to the mid market, to the, uh, lower end of the enterprise, to upper end of the enterprise, to the, the big behemoth kind of, you know, uh, global 2000 companies. Um, you have to make sure that you're being very careful on the decisions you make on not just what you build, mm-hmm. but what you choose not to build.
0: Yeah, Interesting.
1: You know, um, the simplicity with which you can't sacrifice simplicity when you have an extremely horizontal product that you're building for the masses. Um, you know, and so that's the thing that we spend a lot of time on is, you know, what are the things that are going to make a lot of sense for us to build that are going to really help have a vastly horizontal uh, reach for the market where we're not building things that are kind of uh, niche capabilities for one or two customers here or there. We're building things that are going to be used by 90,000 customers and 60 million users on an ongoing basis
0: interesting because that's got to be hard sometimes right like when you have a big corporation come to you and say we'll give you x amount of dollars to make this happen sometimes that's really hard to turn down if that's like that niche kind of feature right or or do you guys do that sometimes
1: no we actually try to make sure that we have a very systematic way that we take input from the market um and you know there are times we do a better job than others and there's of course room for improvement as we go through it but um, the, the thing that you have to do is you, you what you can't do is stop listening to the, to your customers, whether they're small or large, uh, customers give you a lot of insight, but the thing that's important is what you listen to your customers for. One of the things that we are very maniacal of is making sure that we really fixate on the problems that we want to solve. Okay. Right? And so, uh, the most important thing is picking the right problems to solve because once you pick the right problem to solve. Uh, don't, you know, we always tell our, our, our product leaders, don't get too attached to the solution. Get attached to the problem because okay. the solutions will have a shorter shelf life than what the problem will have. And you'll continue to keep solving the problem in a better and better way with different solutions. So focus on the problem because once you've picked you – know, and we also have another kind of uh, key philosophy, which is the quality of the problem that you pick to solve is actually directly proportionate to the success of the outcome. Interesting, um, which is very counterintuitive to understand because what it means is the harder the problem, the higher likelihood that you will succeed, which makes you know no sense when you first initially think of it. But the, the reason that's the case is the harder the problem, the better minds that you will attract to the problem. And once you have a really, really uh, good group of people that are uh, deep thinkers on a problem that are passionate about a problem, that's when you actually end up building the best outcomes and the best solutions. And once you have the best solutions built with a great group of people, you tend to have, um, you know, a higher success rate. And so the harder the quality of the problem, the higher the likelihood of success, which is very counterintuitive, but something that we take pretty seriously internally.
0: Interesting. So how many people do you necessarily throw at some of these problems? You mentioned to me kind of before – uh, we started recording that you like to use kind of small teams and and iterate fast. But how do you guys actually pick that small team and and how do you get them to actually iterate fast on some of these really challenging problems?
1: Yeah, so uh, we've uh, and this is not an original idea at all. We plagiarized it from um, from someone else. But uh, big bel- believers that uh, <clears throat> in the Amazon model of two pizza teams. So. Okay. Well, we tend to believe, and I don't know if you know the the core philosophy of two pizza teams, is basically they don't have teams that are larger than can be fed with two pizzas so that you actually, you know, it's a team size of eight to 12 people typically. And what you try to do there is keep the team small enough so that everyone actually knows each other well and can really work on execution rather than if you have a 40, 50 person team, what ends up happening is most of the time is spent in just coordinating and getting everyone on the same page. Right. You know, you have these small teams that are very kind of uh, agile. And, uh, you know, uh, what we then do is once you have those teams, we have a very distinct kind of set of roles that comprise of a team. So we have this, um, um, you know, kind of um, of, uh, a configuration that we call Peapod. And uh, the configuration essentially is uh, Peapod, which is spelled P-E-A-P-O-D, each one of the letters, actually uh, uh, relates to a role. So the first P is for product management. The E is for engineering. Uh, A is for analytics. Second P is for program management O is for online growth and um, you know, kind of growth marketing kind of pieces. And then um, D is for design. And those six roles in varying numbers of people within each one of the roles actually comprise a pod. And we typically have a pod for a problem that we're trying to solve. So there is a pod at box for governance and there's a pod for security and there's a pod for um, notifications and there's a pod, like there's different kind of areas that you'll have a pod or a team that's focused on. And then we are primarily focusing on making sure that that pod is well equipped with a problem space and own their own local mission. And that local mission should ladder up to the corporate mission that we have. And so, and then they have a key set of metrics that they drive for that specific, um, you know, kind of pod. And what that allows us to do is have everyone feel like they're, they're controlling their own destiny. Um, they're almost running a startup within a large company, and you can keep, you know, uh, the team very agile. And as the company grows, you don't grow the size of the team. You just create many, many more pods. Interesting. And and that actually keeps the agility going. So while, while we are thirteen years old, we operate like a startup, and that's the reason we've been able to do that. Is this philosophy?
0: Interesting. So do you ever mix up the pods then, or do people usually stick in their pod problem to problem?
1: Well, so the pods have a lot of dependency with one another. Right. For example, um, you know you might have a um, web app team. The web app team is the one that actually defines what the interaction model is going to be for a web application, but there might be a bunch of other teams that are actually looking to, um, you know, manifest the capability in the web app, and there's a dependency between those two teams. So we, we, we have a pretty elaborate process on how we manage dependencies across different teams. But, you know, so the pods have a lot of... We are in a very interdependent world, but there is a very clear local mission and an owner... For a particular feature or capability, um, so that they can actually drive um, through, and then those dependencies need to get managed. And part of the job of that um, of that um, of that part is to make sure that they can drive through the dependencies across the different orgs that you might have.
0: Interesting. Okay. Now that makes some sense. So I- I'm curious, though. You give. I'm in a pod, and I'm working on a solution, and it's ready for for testing and maybe some alpha or some beta testing. How do you guys actually go about testing it and making sure it's ready to roll out to the real world and real customers?
1: Yeah, and that that's a really good question because as we build products and as and I think with machine learning and AI, that changes completely as well because the mm-hmm. software development model is completely changing to a much more non deterministic non-deterministic model with AI than it was in um, in, in, the, in the traditional world where, um, and so let me kind of explain that. So the way that we've, um, we've grown up, um, beta was something that would actually, for certain, result in a G8 product. Mm-hmm. That is no longer the case anymore, because you might have a beta product that you might have, but the machine learning algorithms and what you learn about what's going on with ML might actually completely uh, tell you that what you thought was a hypothesis about something is not in fact the way that ML is solving the problem. Interesting. And so, you know, the predictability of when something gets shipped or the fact that something does in fact get shipped when it's in beta is, is actually starting to change in the world. That's not just a box phenomenon. That's just across the board. Now, the way that we do it internally is, we have a very clear set of guidelines on how we, because we are an enterprise company. So mm-hmm. one of the things with an enterprise company is you can't operate like a consumer company where you ship when you ship and no one needs to know about it. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, is you have to actually give your customers enough advance notice to say this is what's coming on these dates, um, so that customers can then get prepared and getting that deployed within their environment. So there is a chain effect that goes on there. So the way that we've done this is, you know, we have. Um, a um, very rigorous kind of testing period for the product so that, you know, when 90,000 customers and 60 million users are using it, that we are we're thinking about how we're going to scale the systems and the fact that we've actually got the right, um, you know, kind of um, expectations of what the performance would look like and what the problems it's solving. But we will keep a pretty long beta cycle. Okay, uh, And during that time period, we actually get some early customers engaged. And then what we have is, Um, A very unique way that we've thought about innovating products within Box, which is there's a three-phase process that we go through. The first phase of the process is you have to get, when you get a product launched to the market, you have to get to product-market fit. And that's the first phase. Mm -hmm. That typically would mean that you've got a market for which you're serving, which you're trying to serve with your solution. And the people that you're serving in that market have to feel so extremely rewarded with the solution that if you took it away from them, they, they would feel that their lives got meaningfully degraded. There should be a large percentage of people uh, that should feel that their lives got degraded if you take away the solution that you've given them. That's when you know you have product market fit. That's phase one. Once you've got product market fit, phase two is how do you make sure that you create a um, um, you know repeatable selling motion? And that repeatable selling motion essentially says, um, I'm going to... Uh, essentially have a way that I can sell the same thing over and over again rather than going out and customizing something different for every single customer. Because that doesn't create a level of scale.
0: No, but that's also really hard to do as
1: well. Really and we have to make sure that we're very disciplined in that phase because every customer has a request mm-hmm. and we have to go out and deeply understand their problems rather than taking feature requests from customers all the time. Interesting. And so then It's the- almost
0: the opposite way of traditional... W- which a lot of companies do.
1: Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I, f- I feel
1: like a bad question to ask someone who's a customer is what feature would you like? Us yeah, to build? That's the a worst. good question to ask someone who's a customer is what problems are you facing on your day-to-day? And then you rely on us to come back to you with a solution that you can react to. Interesting. You know, And then the third phase, once you've actually gotten to a repeatable selling motion and you've identified, you've, you've got a, you built a product that has product market fit, you've got a repeatable selling motion. Number three is now you... Uh, You focus on scaling that thing, but don't prematurely try to scale. Start with things that don't scale so that you can eventually sustainably scale. And, you know, on that dimension, it's very important that that gets internalized with people. So, for example, one of the things we do is when we have a new product that we launch, we have this uh, program that we call the F10 program, the flagship 10 program. Okay where we try to get at least 10 customers that become huge champions of our product with white glove treatment. And the reason, when I mean white glove treatment, I mean if an engineer or product manager has to fly out to a customer to sit down and help them configure the system, we Mm -hmm. will do that in the early days of the product because if you can't get the customer to see value in your product when you give them white glove treatment, Mm For certain at scale, you'll never be able to do that. If even with white glove treatment, they don't see the value. So you have to make sure that you get them to see the value first and then start figuring out how you're going to scale it and automate things.
0: Interesting.
1: Is this helpful to go through for you?
0: you no, know, I love it. I, I think this is this is actually really quite fascinating because I think a lot of companies don't do this process, right? They quickly try to mash out as many features and integrations as possible. They half-bake testing at best, and then they just roll it out, right? And then they wait for the backlash or hope there's no backlash. But, you know, I think how you guys do it, especially with these big customers, entire businesses are dependent on your software. And if you push something that's broken or buggy or doesn't work or breaks their current workflow they might be down for hours or days and you can't let that happen because if you do let that happen they'll go somewhere else fair to say
1: that is actually it's it's really interesting because we are in what we call an indirect business that means okay. that we don't necessarily ourselves we aren't in the business of saving lives but right. you know what the companies that use us actually use us for remote surgeries and they actually save lives or
0: interesting
1: the Metropolitan Police uses us to do crime prevention on the streets. And if we go down, then they can't do that. And yeah. so there's there's essentially a um, a nuance to the indirect business, which is you might not necessarily know what mission-critical mission process every customer is using. But when you're a mission-critical business, downtime is really, really bad. And so it's actually one of the most kind of um, implicit privileges to have to when customers start complaining if your system goes down for one minute, mm-hmm. you know you've done something right because they can't live without your system being up. And that is actually – that you know that you've solved a problem that's important enough at that point. And so that's an area that we really try to focus on is be mission critical, think mission critically, but make sure that you're getting feedback from customers in a way that doesn't um, – that doesn't misdirect the product where you're not building a scalable product. You're building a product that's a massively horizontal product for a, for, for the mass market. And you're trying to do that in a way that actually gets people uh, to feel delighted when they use, the, use your experience. And so that's what we try to keep doing better at.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's actually quite fascinating. But you guys partner with a bunch of other companies and, and do a bunch of integrations How do you decide who to partner with and and maybe give us some good examples of of how you guys have partnered with companies uh, currently?
1: Yeah, so we, um, I think this is a property of the new world that we live in, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, which is basically that you will uh, partner with your largest competitors. and Think from the customer experience first and then move backwards. You've just lost the plot you know, somewhere along the the way. And so what we do is we think about this from the standpoint of, uh, and I I think it actually goes very implicitly. I, I feel like partnering is such a core value because it actually shows a company's arrogance in a very implicit way. If you don't believe in partnering, you are arrogant enough to think that all problems in that domain will be solved by you and that you believe in your own power greater than the collective power of innovation of the ecosystem. And that's just simply not true. So the reality is, is if you actually partner really well, um, you will effectively, what you're saying is, is we're never arrogant enough to think that we will be better off than the collective ecosystem, but we will make sure that we contribute to the ecosystem and making sure that each one of us can do what we do best so that the customer can do what they do best. Right. And, um,
0: Sorry, no, I was just going to say, yeah, because at the end of the day, the customer, well, n- not every customer, but a lot of customers, in, in some cases, don't really care what company's providing them the service. They just want that service, and they want that service to work, and they want it to integrate with all their other services that they use. Is that exactly. a very simplified version of it? But that's basically what you're saying, correct? That's basically what
1: and, – and the way that we do it, so I'll give you a couple examples. Okay. Our biggest – Competitors in our business is Microsoft. Okay, and why is that because Microsoft has been in this market for a while They've got a couple competing products and you know, um, we believe uh, Respectfully that our products might be better than theirs in areas like OneDrive and SharePoint, but Mm -hmm. uh, Across the board they compete with us in that dimension, but that that is about 2% of where we compete with them Uh 98% is all the different technologies that Microsoft provides that we want to make sure that we plug into so that we can add value to our customers. So if customers are using Office, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, what have you, and they want to actually use Box as the system of record, they should be able to do that seamlessly from either of our products. Um, if, if a customer then wants to also use Google, um, we should integrate with Google just as well we do with Microsoft. And if the customer wants to use Apple and Apple products like iWork, we should be able to integrate with Apple. So the, the whole notion of neutrality Um, And a business model that actually promotes a level of partner integration and dependence on partners is something that's central to our core value and ethos.
0: Interesting, But then how do you make sure, because you have tons of partners and and integrations, how do you make sure that you're keeping those integrations and partnerships actually working for your customers?
1: Yeah, so this is a strategic uh, decision that we had to make pretty early on in our business, which is one. You have to open up your APIs so that there is, at scale, people are able to go out and use um, um, use your product and integrate with your product. So we opened up our APIs back in 2008. And we wow. have over 1,400 integrations now. Wow. Into our, right. That's a lot. That, that was a lot. And that was a strategic decision that we made back in 2008. And then the second thing that we have to do is make sure that there is a level of investment that is made for even some of the... So that's the 1,400, kind of the long tail of all the partner ecosystem that's out there. Then we take the ones that are the most used by customers, whether it be Office or Google or Apple or Salesforce or ServiceNow or NetSuite or, um, you know, uh, and and about a a few dozen um, others. And we make sure that we actually work very closely with their product teams and our product teams interlocking with each other saying, what would be the right experience for the customer? When the customer is in box and they want to go out and open up a document in Microsoft Word, how, what would the best experience be that takes out all the friction? When the customer is in box and they want to go do something with G Sheet or with Apple Keynote uh, or with Slack or Facebook at Workplace, how should that experience look? And we should work with those product teams bidirectionally in making sure that our product experience calling out theirs and their product experience calling out content from our, our um our um, system is completely seamlessly done and if we can make that happen and keep the customer first then all of us win and this is where we get a lot of input from customers so we typically tend to look at customers where we will have a lot of advisory boards that give us input so there's a cio advisory board a product advisory board but these customers are kind of some of our leading edge customers who are ahead of the game and they tend to give us a lot of feedback saying these are all the systems and this is my tech stack and these are the systems we're using and then we take that signal from them and then go and make sure that we form partnerships with um, with the players in the market so that the entire SaaS ecosystem almost works as a single uh, you know, kind of system in harmony even though there are multiple providers for that system.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious though, because you guys will spend a tremendous amount of effort making sure your software works cross-platform, cross-device. How do you guys kind of think about that? And, and do you guys change the experience at all between different platforms and different devices?
1: We do. We think of... Um, there is a core value that we think about, which is every feature we build, um, You know, how do you think about it from a cross-modality standpoint rather than just a single modality? Right. So web is a modality, mobile is a modality, tablets, what have you, um, the desktop... And we want to build a feature that has a a property for cross-modality. However, each modality needs to be um, thought through by itself rather than just trying to have the same features in every single modality. So, for example, the way that notifications behave on mobile should be very different than the way that they behave on the web should be very different than desktop. And we should actually think about that and incorporate it into our design um, goals as we're thinking about this. So, uh, you know, the way that we are evolving our organization is as the footprint of the product gets bigger, um, we have to make sure that we're not launching something in one modality and not the other. We're trying to do as much as we can cross-modality, but that doesn't mean that every modality has every feature that the other modality has. It's just a matter of like, you know, it's purpose-built for a particular modality because the use case will demand that there are certain things people do on certain form factors, and those are the ones that we should actually make sure we optimize for.
0: Sure, and that makes a lot of sense. So how do you guys decide to, or not, well, to either adopt or not adopt kind of new trends in the space? Because obviously like augmented reality, VR, um, obviously like, I think every everybody's got a mobile version now, but how do you guys make sure you don't necessarily jump on something too early, but but also decide to maybe be on that platform?
1: Yeah, and I'll give you examples of both of where, um, you know, in our business, what makes sense to do and uh, how we think about this. So sure. the one thing that we have, Become pretty good at is identifying mega trends in the market. Okay. And making sure that those mega trends get used as tailwinds in your business rather than fighting against them. Okay. So is that data
0: call. from your guys' internal kind of data or is that uh, just like general data or a bit of both?
1: It's a bit of both. We okay. actually listen to experts in the industry. We make sure that we listen to our customers and then, all you know, uh, above all, is also, what our um, our internal teams are thinking about, what's, what's going on in the market. And so, for example, uh, one of the big megatrends that happened that actually helped create our business was the cloud. Where we knew and we saw that the move was happening where it was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when people are going to move to the cloud. Yeah. Um, the second big megatrend was mobile, where people were going to have multiple devices. And so those two megatrends, then got used by us as tailwinds where we said, let's ride that wave and make sure that if we do everything on the cloud, on mobile, that's actually going to give us a propellant moving forward in a very, very different way. Um, and you know, it's going to propel us moving forward. And then the third one that is just now starting to take uh, take effect and it's still early days, but we think is going to be a hugely instructive mega trend for us is artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? Where you essentially will have the experience that you have with your content systems today um, and over the next five years will be completely different than what has been over the past 25. Um, And, you know, systems will get much more intelligent and much more automated in the way they tag information and the way that you can do discovery on them and the way that you can actually take actions and trigger workflows and all of those things will just get inherently more intelligent because you'll be able to go out and make sure that, um, you know, machine learning algorithms can be applied to your content. So what we do is we identify these megatrends and rather than fighting them, what we try to do is say, what is the core first principle of those megatrends? And how can we make sure that we use all the innovation that's happening in that area and use it as a tailwind rather than a headwind? So in the cloud, partnering with cloud infrastructure providers rather than going out and trying to compete with them makes a lot of sense. Right in um, In mobile partnering with Apple and Android, and making sure that those ecosystems get fully leveraged as a result of our product makes complete sense in machine learning there's billions of dollars being spent on machine learning algorithms right now that we should not just go out and try to compete with and saying we're going to build our own. We should say all of those amazing innovations that are being made by companies like Amazon and Microsoft and IBM and Google and it, let's bring those to the content in box and so I think what's important for companies is identifying what those megatrends are at the right time and then making sure that you can start investing in them so they can, act, they can become tailwinds. Now, your question you had was, what happens in those cases when it's too early? Well, in some cases, we might not necessarily have a use case that has gotten to a level of maturity where we need to release a solution yet. I'll give you a simple example on that. Is sure. Today, we don't have anything in the market for blockchain. Okay. Because I th- I feel like there's still a level of maturing that has to happen in that area before it can actually be used for content management and storage systems in a distributed ledger. Are we paying very close attention to that? Yes. Uh, is that something that we're doing today? No, because like we'll, we'll do it when the time is right. Uh, we don't want to make sure that we are too early to the market with a solution. We don't want to make sure that we're too late to the market with a solution. You have to time it just right. And if you time it right, typically timing is a large part of the... Um, you know, success in the equation.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious to get, I don't know if this is kind of the box official stance on it or not, or or your personally, and you can kind of answer however you see fit. But I think in a lot of cases, we're almost going away from having the best hardware in a laptop or, or whatnot that we're basically getting, not like a dummy computer, but... Something where you basically log into a service like Box, do all your work in it, and then leave and, and go on you know, with your evening or, or whatever once you're done work because you don't need a crazy fast computer anymore. You basically just need a keyboard and a monitor and an internet connection. And somebody like Box just kind of handles all the heavy lifting on, on the server end.
1: Do you agree with that or where do you think computing is going?
0: So I think there's going
1: to be uh, – that's a really interesting question because if you – on one end, it is absolutely true that there will be some workloads that are being moved where the dependency on your physical device – is less because this it is provided as a service and it's a utility model where, you know, you're for example Like it doesn't matter which device I'm using I get I get across all my devices I get access to the data that I want. Yeah, same. and it's far less relevant today like, If I lose my phone today I mean it sucks that I paid a lot of money for the phone and I lost it But it's yeah. lose my data because my phone was gone. Right? Yeah, fair. Um, on the other mm-hmm. hand, if you look at most of the devices today, they're infinitely more powerful than mainframe computers used to be, you know, with the, that occupied entire rooms. My iPad today is more powerful than any of those. Yeah, which is wild, right? Yeah. And the local amount of processing that actually gets done when you're watching a video, when you're doing any kind of, you know, machine learning, all that. Like, there is a level of uh, th- these devices aren't getting powerful just for the fun of it. Like if you look at the next generation of applications with AR and VR and all of those, like those will actually require a lot of local computing as well. Interesting. And so it. I think the architecture is not as simplistic as it's going to be all in the cloud or all on the edge. I think there's a combination depending on the workload you're thinking about. There's some on the edge, some on the cloud. Uh, and that actually does also impact how, um, how companies are going to manage their, um, uh, you know, kind of cost structures. So for example... Um, you know, there might be certain things that might be better computed on the edge than in the cloud, but then there's other things that you want to keep keep in the cloud because that actually has a level of centralized control, so you can go go across different devices. So, I think it's going to be a combination of both. Um, what I'm what I'm really excited about, though, is that the uh, the the um, uh, the class of applications that are being built with um, with the uh, that take advantage of the compute power at the edge as well as the compute power in the cloud are actually getting really discontinuous in nature where there 's things that you could never even imagine five years ago that you and I just take for granted that we do today that are just you know remarkable that you just couldn 't do before because of the fact that the the pipes weren 't big enough the servers weren 't weren 't um, kind of you know strong enough, and the clients weren 't strong enough and now all those three areas are 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 continuing to get solved simultaneously?
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I kind of agree with, with it. It's a bit of both too. I I know. I, I guess what what got me really kind of fascinated about it is Are you familiar with like Google's Project Stream? They just did it with beta, and they did it with uh, the Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and you can basically play a full game on on a. Crappy old Chromebook, right? For example, because everything's handled streaming and you basically just remote log in, right? So it's interesting to see companies do that where something like that kind of video game needs such good hardware to run on, but you could run it on a crappy old Chromebook because I have a crappy old Chromebook that I've tried it on. And and so it's interesting to see, but I, I think to your point, it really depends on the situation, right? And certain things people don't want to run in the cloud or can't run in the cloud or enterprise doesn't want it to run in the cloud or maybe it does want it to run in the cloud. So I think a case-by-case thing is going to be really quite fascinating.
1: It'll but, also depend on the geography because yeah, fair. you go to the next billion people that might be in continents like Africa or some places where they don't have very rich processing power at the edge, it makes a lot of sense to have that um, that use case uh, be more concentrated in the cloud. In other more developed markets where privacy is a big big deal, you might want to make sure that you actually have things that don't ever leave the edge and don't ever get to the server because that might actually compromise privacy. And so there's like a there's a whole spectrum of different use cases that um, that I, I think will emerge where there'll be. Uh, You know, there will be an intelligent and um, highly, um, you know, uh, potent edge and there will be an intelligent, highly potent, um, you know, server um, and then every layer in the middle.
0: Sure. So I want to touch on something related to security. How do you guys stay on top of it and make sure that everything you guys are building is secure? Because I think as more and more stuff gets moved to the cloud, the harder and harder security gets. Is that fair to say?
1: It is. And I think it's it's something that if it's not a core value, you literally, uh, if, if security becomes an afterthought, you basically um, just can't do it effectively. So one of the things that we we are not confused about is security, data protection, governance, privacy. This is a... This is what we call kind of um, the P0 activity, where if we don't have those things, we don't even have the right to have a conversation to serve a customer, let alone serving a customer. Interesting. And so what we do is we actually start with, we have this kind of you know, internal process that we have. Where, uh, enterprise grade is, is kind of requirement zero. If you don't have that, then the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. And so in, in the way in which we go out and invest in our products, in the way in which we make sure that we um, um, uh, um, assign resources, that is very uh, explicitly reflected. Um, once you have that, um, what, what you have to keep in mind is security that is complex for the user is actually just as harmful as no security at all. Because what people do is they do an end around so not only do you have to have great security, you have to have great security that's frictionless for the user, because when you make that security that's frictionless for the user, now people start using it in a way that um, that uh, is um, you know uh, that that's going to be massively adopted rather than actually going to be only adopted in corner cases. So I'll give you an example. We are building a product right now um, called Box Shield, and we already um, there's some really interesting use cases. So one of the use cases, for example, is. How do you make sure that anomalies get detected in an automated way uh, so that people know and can be flagged when something is going wrong in your system? So, for example, G2 just accessed a document from New York, and then all of a sudden, an hour and a half later, he accessed uh, a different document from London.
0: Right, not going to happen, yeah.
1: In- impossible travel situation. So, let's flag that to the administrator saying, This is an anomaly that happened in your system. Let me give you an alert so you can do something about it. You know, those kind of things I think are pretty important to actually start continuing to innovate on. But the way that we think about security is you literally can't think of it as an afterthought. And every feature we build, security is the first thing we think about. And if that doesn't happen, then we, we don't think we can build a feature because that's what customers come to us for.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. So we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. But the one thing I want to talk about is pricing. You basically have a free plan and then it goes up from there. Um, do you maybe want to elaborate a little bit on pricing, though?
1: Yeah, the way that we think of pricing, and I'll just give you philosophically what our pricing is. Sure. I mean, we have a, um, you know, um, uh, I, 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 we could take like a different podcast and just pricing philosophies. Sure. Let me just give you a very quick kind of uh, perspective on pricing, which is you uh, – uh, we are in the business of building things for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of users right. and eventually billions of users. And so the way that we have to price it is, you know, building something, pricing it for the mass market rather than pricing it for a very niche market. Right. That's the first thing that we keep in mind. The second thing we keep in mind is you should, as a principal philosophy and this, think of this as G2 Patel's philosophy rather than boxes. But we do a pretty good job with this one, which is. Um, you should never try to monetize more than 30% of your value. Interesting. Because the moment you try to get pretty close to monetizing the full potential of your value, what ends up happening is customers feel like, oh, they're paying too much. Uh, and so what you want to do is make sure that you're giving them much more value than what you're actually monetizing. And what that does is keeps the customer with you for longer, and you have lower churn, and your economics of your business just gets stronger and stronger. And so, you know, if you look at our business, like we've got very low churn rates and we've got massive expansion rates in our business and we've got new customers that we add three to four thousand logos a quarter. Wow. Those things are because of the fact that we keep that value vector in mind a lot more. And don't try to nickel and dime customers for every single thing that they're doing, but say, OK, you, there's going to be a certain amount of value you're going to receive and we'll always monetize less than that value.
0: No, I, I think that's that's really good advice and, and a really good place to end it. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention.
1: Um, yeah, if you just go to box.com, um, www.box.com, you can learn more about our, our company, our service. Um, and if you want to follow um, me on Twitter, I'm um, jpatel41.
0: Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time into your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.